With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. I got a lot of mystery and a lot of supernatural coming your way today. This episode, we have three chilling cases. First up is an unsolved murder case out of Texas that has left investigators baffled for years. Our second story is a strange disappearance in the mysterious Lake Michigan Triangle. And lastly, we have a supernatural story of divine intervention. Welcome back to Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross. I'm so happy you're here with me for today's episode. You know what's up. Make sure you're subscribed to Avery After Dark. Leave a like, a comment, and turn on post notifications. I upload new episodes every week. Everything from chilling true crime cases, to the most puzzling mysteries, to supernatural stories that will leave you with goosebumps. So if that's up your alley, you are in the right place, my friend. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's first case. In January 2019, 29-year-old Elizabeth Liz Barraza was getting ready for an exciting upcoming trip with her husband. The couple lived in Tomball, Texas, a smaller town located about 40 minutes northwest of Houston. Tomball is generally a quiet place with lower crime rates. The couple had lived in their home in the Princeton Place subdivision for about three years. By all accounts, the couple had a great relationship. They were really happy. Liz and Sergio had met in college and married in 2014. Liz had a job as a data reporter and Sergio worked with his father installing flooring. And they were really looking forward to this upcoming trip. They were planning to leave for Orlando, Florida on January 27th to celebrate their five-year wedding anniversary. They were gonna visit Universal Studios and Disney. They were both really big into numerous franchises like Star Wars and Harry Potter. So this trip was like a dream come true for them. In anticipation for their vacation, Liz wanted to make some extra money for their travels, for souvenirs and anything else a couple wanted to purchase during their adventures. So they came up with an idea to have a garage sale at their home. The couple went through their things, picked out some items they no longer wanted, and got everything ready for the garage sale. This seemed like a great way to make some extra cash quickly. The night before on January 24th, Liz and Sergio put out neighborhood signs announcing the sale, hoping to get some traffic from others living in the area. Now, this garage sale wasn't advertised on Liz's social media or any big platform, really. It was going to be smaller and low-key. On the morning of January 25th, Liz woke up early. She had taken the day off work and was eager to get the garage sale set up. She drove up to Starbucks, grabbed herself a coffee, got back around 6.15 a.m., and Liz and Sergio began arranging items outside in the driveway. She was hoping some shoppers would want to get there early, so she was going to be all ready. Sergio helped set up a bit before he had to get ready to head off to work for the day. Sergio left their house at 6.48 a.m. as Liz continued to set up the sale in their driveway. Surveillance footage from that morning gives us a visual of the entire scene, 
both from Liz's doorbell cam and an across-the-street neighbor's surveillance. And we see, four minutes after Sergio leaves, a truck pulls up in front of Liz's house, parking behind her car. Then, an unknown individual exits the vehicle while leaving it running. This person walks straight up towards Liz, up the driveway at 6.52 a.m., and approaches her, wearing what looks to be a robe or a jacket and boots. Liz's doorbell video captures faint audio, believed to be Liz saying good morning, welcoming what she most likely believed was her first customer of the day. Then, everything shifts. There's muffled conversation between Liz and this unknown individual for about six seconds. Liz reacts, scared, and then there's a series of four gunshots. The unknown individual sprints back to their vehicle, and then the truck speeds off. Some concerned neighbors called 911 to report gunshots, and Harris County constables were the first to respond to the scene. Liz was rushed to Memorial Hermann Hospital in Houston and died the next day. Detectives began their investigation and initially stated that since this murder was on tape, this case would likely be solved in a matter of days. Investigators poured over the surveillance footage and stated that the killer shot Liz three times in the chest. And then after she fell over, the killer stood over her and delivered a final shot to the head. Police believed this was a targeted murder and also stated that the killer took nothing from the scene. So this was not any kind of robbery. Then what was the motive here? Police were working overtime to determine what that was, but they believed that this was not a case of mistaken identity, this was deliberate. Investigators also initially believed that the shooter was a woman, but was wearing a disguise. One investigator said the killer appeared to be wearing go-go boots, a muumuu dress, and a wig. But in all honesty, it's hard to make out anything about the shooter. Others believe it's a man in disguise. The vehicle the killer was driving was a 2013 or newer black Nissan Frontier Pro 4X. Detectives see that this truck was seen driving past Liz and Sergio's house at 2 a.m., mere hours before the murder, scoping out the place. Surveillance from a local school parking lot near Liz and Sergio's house shows minutes before the murder, the killer's truck pulling into the parking lot and sitting there. Detectives said the killer was waiting there for Sergio to leave. This truck was also spotted on surveillance driving past the scene of the murder just after the killing as well. Police said they believed that this was the killer driving past one more time to make sure that Liz was deceased. So what about this truck? When questioned, none of Liz's neighbors ever said they had seen that car in the neighborhood before. They didn't recognize it. In November 2022, investigators confirmed for the first time that the gun used in the killing was a revolver. But other than this, there has been really no movement in the case. So Liz's killer is still out there walking freely. Now, Liz's family has no idea why anyone would do this. Liz had no enemies. She was beloved by her family, who called her an amazing, giving young woman. One of her pastimes was dressing up in costumes and visiting children's hospitals. Liz also helped raise money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Who would do this? Many were laser-focused on Sergio, Liz's husband. 
Some found it coincidental that he left the house just mere minutes before she was murdered. But police combed through both Liz and Sergio's phones and found no evidence of any issues in the marriage. No proof of any affairs, no prior threats to either one of them. Sergio has said that he knows a lot of people see him as the number one suspect, but says he has done nothing but cooperate with investigators and wants this case solved. Sergio said he has only watched the surveillance footage from the murder one time to see if he could recognize the killer, but said that he doesn't. He also said that he really thought that they would have caught the killer by now and said it's mind-boggling how in this day and age, the killer has not been apprehended. Speculation and online rumors also swirled after Sergio got remarried only two years after his wife's savage murder. Sergio said that he met his new wife, Amber, about a year and a half after Liz's murder. He said that Amber had lost her sister and they just connected. But there's really no evidence that Sergio was involved in this in any way. One big question many are asking, besides Liz and Sergio, who else knew about this garage sale? Sergio said only a few people knew, including a few of Liz's co-workers, Liz's parents, and Sergio's mother. But that was it. Since her murder, Liz's family has been pleading for help in identifying her killer, even launching a website with all the information on the case, including a complete timeline of that morning. Police have never identified any suspects, but all these years later, Liz's parents still hold on to hope that their daughter's murderer will be found. Justice will be served. And they said the days since their daughter was killed have been filled with anguish. So, who killed Liz Barraza in cold blood? And years later, how has this murderer never been identified? If you have any information on this case, Crime Stoppers may pay up to $50,000 for information leading to the identification of the killer. Tips can be reported online or call 713-222-TIPS. What are your thoughts on this unsolved case? Having heard and seen their surveillance footage, what sticks out to you? Liz and her loved ones deserve justice. Let me know what you think in the comments. Our next case is the strange disappearance of Stephen Kubaki. On a cold winter's day in February 1978, 23-year-old Stephen Kubaki vanished. Stephen was an undergraduate student at Hope College, a small Christian school located by the shores of Lake Michigan. Stephen had ventured out for a solo cross-country skiing expedition for a couple days, but he never came back. The day after he went missing, snowmobilers found Stephen's cross-country skis along with a backpack and contacted police. Investigators found Stephen had left a 200-yard footprint trail in the snow. This trail stretched along the lake's edge, but then abruptly stopped. Police theorized it was likely that Stephen had a terrible accident and must have perished somewhere beneath a thick layer of unbroken ice. This was a grim theory and the last thing that Stephen's family and friends wanted to hear, but there were no other signs of what could have happened. Stephen's parents were devastated and left with no body. They had no closure. What really happened to Stephen was a mystery. Month after month passed with no sign of Stephen. Now, the area that he went missing has been shrouded in mystery for decades. Stephen disappeared in the Lake Michigan Triangle, or simply the Michigan Triangle. This area of the United States stretches from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, to Ludington, Michigan, to South Benton Harbor. Numerous strange occurrences have been attributed to this mysterious triangle, 
where huge ships and even commercial airlines have disappeared. Similar to the Bermuda Triangle, but less known. The mystery here seemed to begin in 1891, when a schooner named Thomas Hume set sail across Lake Michigan in search of lumber. He brought along a crew of seven men, but not long into their voyage, the ship and the men disappeared. To this day, no trace of the boat or the men has ever been discovered. Since then, there's been a long list of strange flight mishaps, ghost ship sightings, and disappearances in the area. Again, just like the Bermuda Triangle, many voyagers and pilots have also reported downright unexplainable weather conditions in the Michigan Triangle. It'll go from one extreme to another in a matter of minutes. Weird stuff. So for those familiar with the area, Stephen's strange disappearance was of no surprise. But what happened next shocked everyone. On May 5th, 1979, it had been 14 months since Stephen Kubaki disappeared. Stephen's parents were at home one day when the doorbell rang. They opened it up to see their son, Stephen, standing on their doorstep. Something they had hoped for but never imagined was possible. Stephen was back and seemed very disoriented, and he was wearing different clothing. He seemed as if he had just woken up from a long nap. His parents informed him of what had happened, and he was in disbelief that he had been missing for over a year. After hugging his son, Stephen's father began asking him what he remembers, and this is where things get even more mysterious. Stephen said he has small fragments of memories, but said he remembers after going missing, being jolted awake in a meadow, almost 700 miles from Lake Michigan. He said he had no idea what happened or how he got there, but as he awoke in the meadow, he said he looked down to see that he was dressed in strange, unfamiliar clothing, and beside him was a backpack he had never seen before that contained maps that didn't belong to him. He was dressed in a Wisconsin Marathon t-shirt and said that during the time he was missing, he felt like he did a lot of running. What truly happened to Stephen Kubaki during those 14 months remains an unsolved mystery to this day. Some believe he went into some sort of fugue state while wandering aimlessly across the country. Some suggested he went into a coma, but others believe Stephen Kubaki was the victim of the Lake Michigan Triangle, which is known for its unexplainable events. Some have even said that Stephen must have entered some sort of a supernatural portal in the Triangle. There's even been conversations that he must have time-traveled. Whoa. Many have questioned his disappearance, and Stephen has always said that he doesn't really remember much, but was always adamant that he had no mental health issues leading up to his disappearance, and in years since, has never suffered anything like this ever again. Stephen Kubaki is one of the more rare cases where an individual who goes missing reappears, and he is currently alive and well and lives in the Pacific Northwest. And he works as a psychologist. And what he says is a funny twist of fate. What do you believe happened to Stephen? Where was he those 14 months? And do you believe he was another victim of the Lake Michigan Triangle? Leave your thoughts and theories in the comments below. I would love to hear them because this case is mind-blowing. Our final case is the Lucky West Side 15. As unbelievable as the story may seem, it really happened. And it's one of the most miraculous cases you will ever hear. Choir practice at the West Side Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska, always began at 7.20 p.m. on Wednesday evenings. 
Every week, it was set in stone. But at 7.25 p.m. on Wednesday, March 1st, 1950, an explosion completely demolished the church. The blast was heard all over. It shattered windows and surrounding homes and even forced a nearby radio station off the air. The close-knit community was horrified, thinking of those 15 choir members that were supposed to be inside the church. But everyone soon realized that something truly supernatural had occurred. Every one of the choir's 15 members escaped grim death because every single one of them were late for practice that night. Considering the sanctified site of the explosion, it's not surprising that many attributed this to divine intervention. Every one of the choir members were late for some reason or another, but it's clear that something was at play here, something supernatural. You gotta hear this, it's absolutely incredible. Leading up to the explosion, that afternoon, Reverend Walter Klempel had gone to Westside Baptist Church to get things ready for choir practice as he always did. He lit the furnace and prepared for the evening as he knew most of the singers were in the habit of actually arriving early around 7.15 p.m. And it was chilly in the church, so he wanted to get things warmed up for the group. After setting up, he went home for a quick dinner. But at 7.10, when it was time for him to get back to the church with his wife and daughter Marilyn Ruth, they found that Marilyn's dress was soiled. They couldn't go like that. So they waited while Miss Klimple ironed another outfit for her daughter, knowing that they would be a few minutes late. This was a reoccurring theme for the night. LaDonna Vandergrift, a high school sophomore, was having a lot of trouble with a geometry problem. She knew choir practice began promptly and usually always got there early. But this evening, she felt the need to stay and finish the problem. She wanted to complete her homework first. Royanna Estes, another choir member, was all set and ready to leave for practice, but strangely, her car would not start. She tried it, she had her family try and start it, but it was not moving. So she and her sister called LaDonna Vandergrift and asked her to pick them up on the way to practice. But LaDonna was the girl with the geometry problem who was running late too, so both the sisters had to wait for her. Sadie Estes' story was the same as Royanna's. Their car just refused to start. They had no idea what was wrong with it as it was running fine the day before, but this evening, the car wouldn't start. Mrs. Leonard Schuster would ordinarily have arrived at the church around 7.20 p.m. with her small daughter, Susan. But on this particular evening, Mrs. Schuster had to go to her mother's house to help her get ready for a missionary meeting. Herbert Kempf, another choir member, was actually running early for practice that night. But at the last moment, he decided to hang back. He had put off writing an important letter for a while and said he can't think of why, but he just felt the need to stay home and finish it that evening. He lingered over the letter and was late as well. This is getting crazy, isn't it? Another member, Joyce Black, said it was a really cold evening and she was feeling just plain lazy. So she stayed in her warm house until the last possible moment, ultimately running late for choir practice too. Because his wife was away, another choir member, Harvey Owl, was taking care of his two sons. He was going to take them to practice with him, but somehow he ended up losing track of time. When he looked down at his watch, he saw he was already late for choir practice. Marilyn Paul, the pianist, had planned to arrive to the church that evening a half an hour early. However, she happened to fall asleep after dinner, and when her mother awakened her at 7.15, she only had time to tidy up and head out. Mrs. Paul, the choir director and mother of the pianist, 
was late simply because of her daughter. High school girls Lucille Jones and Dorothy Wood were neighbors and customarily went to practice together. But Lucille was listening to a 7 to 7.30 radio program and broke her habit of promptness because she really wanted to hear the end of the episode. And Dorothy waited patiently for her. All of these individuals, all late for various reasons, all narrowly escaped death. And they were all en route to the church when it happened. At 7.25 p.m., a roar was heard all over the quaint town of Beatrice. The Westside Baptist Church had exploded. An explosion so big, windows and surrounding buildings shattered. The walls of the church fell outward and the heavy wooden roof crashed straight down. It would have been sudden and tragic death for every single one of these choir members if they were inside the church. But none of them were. Miraculously, no one was inside the church that night. Because of small inconveniences like a dirty dress, a nap, an unfinished letter, a math problem, and a stalled car, every member of the choir was late that evening. And this was something that had never happened before. Ever. Firemen thought the explosion had been caused by natural gas, which may have leaked into the church from a broken pipe outside and was ignited by the fire from the furnace. The choir members had no particular theory about the fire's cause, but each of them reflected on the strange mishaps and details of that night, and they all thought, this is an act of God. And they supposed right. The odds of every single choir member being late that evening are slim. But how slim? Precise odds are nearly impossible to estimate in these kinds of cases. But we can't get a ballpark figure. The chances of this event happening were examined. Odds indicated that each person would be late for practice one in four times, producing a one in a million chance the entire choir would be late that night. One in a million. Even skeptics have had a tough time explaining this away. Because it isn't logical. It's supernatural. It's divine. I love this story so much because it can be applied to my life and yours. Every day, we have those little things. Those small inconveniences that, in the moment, seem like nothing. You know the ones I'm talking about. Like, oh, I got stuck in traffic, so I didn't make it to this party in time. Or, ugh. I ended up having to work late at the office the other day. I wish I could have left earlier like I planned to. Or, I wish I would have been able to go on that trip, that vacation. I really missed out. Maybe you did, but maybe you didn't. Maybe these things in our day-to-day -day lives aren't small at all. Maybe they're blessings. You know what they say, God works in mysterious ways. When we know this, I believe we'll go about our days and lives a bit differently. When something doesn't work out or doesn't go as planned, like being late for choir practice, maybe it isn't a small inconvenience. Maybe it's the best thing that could have ever happened to you. I would love to know if you have ever experienced anything like this, divine intervention in your life. Leave them in the comments. I can't wait to hear your experiences. These stories amaze me and make me even more curious about this big supernatural world we so clearly live in. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. I would love it if you subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. Leave a like and a comment and let me know what cases, places, and stories you would like to see next on Avery After Dark. Next week, I have another very mysterious, very chilling episode coming your way. Until then, I'm Avery Ross and this is Avery After Dark.